VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You know, I guess I think... I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. Now, this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Three decades after his death, the legacy of Ian Curtis still looms large. Now we get the real story from his Joy Division bandmate, Peter Hook. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Bass player Peter Hook joins us for a candid conversation about the death of his friend and his feud with the remaining members of New Order. And later, Chance the Rapper gives us acid rap. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. A major development in the digital music world this week when Google introduced what it's calling the Google Play Music All Access Service, a curated music service that is offering two things. It's allowing customers to store millions of tracks on any device they choose, and it's also offering a radio without rules component, an endless supply of music on demand. You can have as much or as little control as you want over it. Now, whereas a lot of these streaming services right now, or at least Spotify, is offering a free tier to its customers, this Google service is going to make you pay. They're going to offer a 30-day free trial period, but then it's going to be $9.99 a month in the United States. Major competition any way you slice it with Spotify, which has 24 million regular users, including 6 million subscribers, and Pandora, which has 200 million-plus users right now. We are talking about the world's number one search engine, combining the best of Spotify and the best of Pandora, or so it says, into one service. This is ground control to Major Tom. Greg, the gentleman crooning that cover of David Bowie's Space Oddity is the Canadian astronaut 
Chris Hadfield, who for five months has been in charge of the International Space Station, and by the time this airs, he'll be coming home aboard a Russian spacecraft. He's been tweeting like a maniac from up there in outer space. He's been putting stuff on YouTube. He bid farewell to the space station with this cool cover of David Bowie. He was collaborating with a group of Canadian musicians back on Earth, and they were swapping tracks from Canada to outer space. This story, which got a lot of coverage, reminded me of a story from late last year. Around Christmas, an auction house put out to bid an old Scotch C60 cassette with the tracks written on in felt-tip pen. Astronaut Edgar Mitchell had taken this tape with him to the moon on Apollo 14. I was just thinking, how cool is that? Especially given that this astronaut had really good taste in music. There was a lot of Creedence Clearwater Revival, Simon and Garfunkel, Marvin Gaye on the tape, and the cassette went for a pretty reasonable price, about $4,100. But this begs the question, I think, if we were to do a lunar edition of the Desert Island Jukebox, (laughs) what music would you take, Mr. Cott, with you to the moon? Well, you're going to be up there a long time, so I figured I'd take the entire catalog of Sun Ra, who sounded like he recorded his entire catalog from outer space. Yeah. But one song, I'd say uh, Calling Planet Earth by Sun Ra. I would take Here Comes the Sun, the George Harrison song with the Beatles, because it was on Astronaut Mitchell's cassette, and that's a pretty good pick. You know, you're in darkness for much of the time on the moon, except when the sun comes into orbit. And I think I'd want to feel that connection. Listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Transmission, the great 1979 single by Joy Division. More than 30 years after the suicide of its lead singer, Ian Curtis, and its transformation into New Order, the Manchester band continues to grow in legend. Ian Curtis, with his magnetism and genius, he's become like a symbol for a lot of young punks to this day. But he's also been reduced to uh, caricature and myth, much like Kurt Cobain in a lot of ways. But his bandmate, Joy Division and New Order bassist Peter Hook, is hoping to reveal a clearer picture of the band and his friend in his new book, Unknown Pleasures, Inside Joy Division. Now, it's true that uh, Ian Curtis suffered epilepsy, he struggled with depression, he had a failing marriage, but Hook doesn't remember a tragic figure. Rather, he's describing this beer-drinking prankster 
who was nothing but joyful when it came to the music he made with him, guitarist Bernard Sumner, and drummer Stephen Morris. Greg, they made a sound that still resonates today, despite only recording two albums before Curtis's death, Unknown Pleasures in 1979 and Closer, which came out in 1980. New Order came together shortly after the end of Joy Division, and they had a string of successful singles and albums before calling it quits in 2007. The band reunited without Peter Hook, and he talks to us about that bitter breakup. But first, we wanted to know why, after so many books and films about the legend of Joy Division, he felt the need to speak out now. What happened was simply that I read one book too many <laughs> about Joy Division, which was Mick Middles and Lindsay Reed, who was Tony Wilson's first wife. Uh, book, uh, and I just thought it was time to put the record straight. Really, I mean, they, they only talk about Joy Division in one way, mm. which is the uh, the gothic, the darkness, <laughs> the you know terrible self fulfilling prophecy that was Ian Curtis's death. Uh, and I've I've never completely bought into that. I mean, I'm not a, a fool, you know. I realise that that sells records and makes reputations, but I've never been convinced that it was the only side of the story. So the thing was. Is, is that when I thought about the wonderful things we went through to get where we ended up as Joy Division, it needed celebrating, really, the human side and the human humanity involved in what we did. And also it's about inspiration. You know, I don't find that those tales of Joy Division uh, are very inspiring, only to a limited number of people who ha maybe have a, you know, a complete death wish. Mm. Um, and to me, punk was all about inspiration. It was about, you know, finding the freedom in your life to do something you wanted to do that you hadn't considered before. Uh, it was a demystification. And I suppose, really, I'm going to have to say that the, the book does demystify that aspect of Joy Division, not too much, I hope, mm -hmm. because the thing is, is that we were very, very serious about what we were doing while we were doing it. It's just that as soon as we went off duty, shall we say, <laughs> we turned into mm. these um, raving, japing lunatics of which Ian was very much a part. You know, I suppose it was a funny way. It was a way of letting off steam from the very serious side the, the, of, of the group. Mm -hmm. So you weren't worried at all, Peter, about taking away the, the – or making the story smaller than it actually was. My, my rock critic hero, Lester Bangs, famously wrote, in rock and roll, there are no facts, only myths. <laughs> and you wanted to talk about the facts, which included yes. the fact that we yeah. had a lot of fun. We were working class yeah. yabos, as you write, yes. who had some laughs. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, is that I had this argument with Tony Wilson when 24-Hour uh, Party People came out. And he wrote his book about 24-Hour Party People, and he actually changed some of the facts, shall we say, yeah. to fit in with the legend. And I now said, people knew it through the movie. Yeah, and I said to Tony, I said, why, why did you do that? You know? hmm. And he said, Peter, he said, you must realise that fiction is far more interesting than fact. And I said, Tony, in this occasion, you're wrong, because the, fic the fiction did not compare to the fact. The smaller the attendance, the bigger the history. There were 12 people at the Last Supper, half a dozen at Kitty Hawk, Archimedes was on his own in the bath. 
Well, and there is this this fatalistic myth in rock and roll that in order to make great art, you have to be miserable and suffer. It's a lie, you know. <laughs> mm. I'm not actually true. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not actually convinced about that because the interesting thing is, is that Tony Wilson did always say to me that I did have one thing to thank the tax man for in England. The fact that he kept us miserable uh, <laughs> meant that we could carry on making great music for so long, which was actually true. I think the thing is, is that once a musician becomes, um, shall we say, comfortable and his surroundings become comfortable, I think his music starts to sound comfortable mm. as well. I would have to agree with that one. But yeah, but it doesn't is, mean you have to be suicidal in order no, to create great No, not great at all. Art. I mean, the, the way we made our music was a struggle. The fact that you were self-financed right the way through. Joy Division nor New Order ever had any record company help in anything that they did. It was all funded by the group, and it was a hell of a struggle, but it did keep you grounded, and it also kept you out of debt, which was a wonderful place for, for you to be in. But, I mean, I do. It's, it's an interesting story, and, and I, I agree. I think the thing is, is that Joy Division made great music because they had to make great music. We, we weren't comfortable. Everything was a struggle. And I think the thing that I try and show in the book is how difficult it can be. But ultimately, you can change the world. This is the way you step inside. And you address one of these myths surrounding the band, or one of the myths certainly surrounding the Manchester scene. You and Bernard Sumner, your boyhood friend, and uh, Morrissey, Marky e. Smith, Pete Shelley are all at this gig seeing the Sex Pistols play in 1976. None of you really knew each other at that point. No, we didn't know. And the impact of that show, though, it seemed like that sort of set the direction of Joy Division. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> it's an interesting point, and uh, one thing that, you know, me coming to America and talking about this has made me realise that it does make me wonder what would have happened if I hadn't have gone to that show. Mm. That, that is a scary moment for me, because I walked into it as a nine-to-five civil servant, and then walked out of it a fully-fledged punk rocker, <laughs> without an instrument, but with a desire, a burning desire to be in a group. Mm -hmm. And it actually seems completely ridiculous now and the fact that Bernard and I were there Pete Shelley Mark e. Smith and all of you in your own little way went on to create and achieve what you did is even more surprising mm -hmm. for that occasion because basically Johnny Rotten just screamed at us it seemed for half an hour to get off our asses, <laughs> F off, you know, and we were like, oh my God, I'd never seen, I mean, and I'd been to see Led Zeppelin a couple of weeks before and Deep Purple, and I never got anything from them like I got from Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols. I never looked at John Paul Jones and thought, like, I could do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thing is, is that I think you have to bear in mind that for Ian, who felt exactly the same way that we did, mm -hmm. the ultimate frustration for him was his illness. Because just when we were getting to the point, when we were going to achieve something, and he knew how much all of us had worked and how much all of us wanted it, 
it was him that ultimately was going to you know, stop it or looked as if he could stop it. And I think that that was his, you know, the shame of that and the frustration of that only added to his awful plight. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the epileptic seizures. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was funny. When I came to do the book, I'd sort of convinced myself that Ian got ill towards the uh, end of Joy Division. But he didn't. He actually got ill very much at the start. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was me sort of, you know, making myself feel a little better <laughs> about what had happened by changing that fact. And his, his illness did become progressively worse. But I think that the, the worse it got, the more he wanted to fight it and the less he wanted to um, give in. Was Ian's power, his charisma, evident from that first meeting? I love the way you write about it. It's a black leather jacket that he <laughs> detourned with uh, spray-painted orange fluorescent paint says, hate. Yeah. Right? What yeah. did you think? You see this guy with this hate jacket. Well, look, amazingly, I saw the front of him before I saw the back of him. Uh, and if somebody had said to me, what do you think that that young man's got written on his back uh, or got on his back, I, I would have thought it was a picture of kittens <laughs> or pink fluffy clouds, uh, certainly not hate in um, fluorescent orange paint because he was not like that. I mean, mm. he was a demon when he was on stage and the intensity of the group got him. But in, his, in himself, you know, off stage, his off stage persona, he was as gentle and as nice uh, and as generous as any human being could possibly be. So that was a bit of a shock for me, well, actually, when I saw him. Were there things that he was hating in culture at the time, or was it just, yeah. you're going to see the Sex I mean, Pistols, you've got to wear a hate jacket? We bought into this fight the world, you know, get rid of the old farts, let's get rid of these old clutter bugs that are at the top of music. <laughs> I mean, you know what, I'm really glad now at the ripe old age of 56 they didn't, because if there was a, a, a compulsory retirement age for musicians <laughs> yeah, like we were trying to bring in, uh, I'd be out of a bloody job. So that, <laughs> that, that is something that I'm glad we didn't get our own way. You know, I must admit that in music today, Day, there, there's a hell of a lot of respect shown to older people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go to a club to DJ, I probably get congratulated by the same kids that are smashing past you on the subway. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they, yeah. They, they show you no respect on the street, but my God, you get up there and play or do, you know, a DJ set and they're full of respect for you. You know, they're, they're, there's no ageism in music in England. But even, even in the punk movement, there was clearly a reverence for certain roots and certain parts of history. I mean, there was so much to me when I first heard Joy Division. There was so much Velvet Underground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, so so clear, it, wasn't, it wasn't out with all the old bands. <laughs> it was, you know, let's remember the bands that mattered. That You know, it was out with Fleetwood Mac. We, we, wouldn't, ad- with- we wouldn't admit it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we wouldn't admit it. I mean, it's, it, it's, it is interesting to think because, I mean, I th- that was one of the thoughts that strikes me about America was that if Joy Division would have made it here because Ian was very, very in awe of all those bands. Mm-hmm. You know, they were his... These idols, The Doors, Velvet Underground, Iggy Pop, all of them, you know, it does make you wonder that if we could have got him here. (laughs) 
We're going to continue talking with Peter Hook about Ian Curtis, Joy Division, and Riffs in New Order after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Jim and I review the new mixtape from the up-and-coming MC, Chance the Rapper. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you've been listening to our interview with Peter Hook, the influential bass player in the Manchester bands Joy Division and New Order. That's him in a rare moment singing lead on the New Order track Dreams Never End. In Hook's recent book, Unknown Pleasures, he offers firsthand a look at Joy Division's history, however brief it was. From watching the Sex Pistols in 76 with schoolmate Bernard Sumner and a who's who of Manchester musicians, to recording Unknown Pleasures in 1979 and Closer in 1980, to lead singer Ian Curtis's suicide just before the band's first U.S. tour later on in 80. Of course, Curtis's death would have an impact on the band's career. The remaining three members reformed as New Order, but Peter also writes about the emotional impact. He says when someone deals with a loved one's suicide, the question usually is, what could we have done? But for him, the question was, what did we actually do? As we pick up our conversation, I wanted to know what he meant by that. Well, I suppose in a, in a way, you have to take it on the chin for the fact that you knew what he was doing, you knew he was getting worse, but you actually did carry on. And the thing is, is that Ian was such a generous guy and he did recognise your work, your enthusiasm, your longing to just play music because it wasn't about money or success. It was just the freedom to play the music that you were writing. And the, the music you were writing was getting so mature for your years. You really did, and I'm sure Ian did, because it was always Ian that used to bring us the music to school us. It was. I remember one wonderful moment when someone compared us to The Doors, uh, and both Bernard and I went, 
Who were the doors? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Ian went, I did have that thought, I'll lend you the LP, and he lent mm. us the LP and blow me down. Mm. We did sound like the doors, and we even went to the lengths of playing Riders on the Storm uh, a couple of times, and nobody noticed. <laughs> yeah. So we must have sounded like the doors. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, I think it was that awful thing that we kept asking him, are you all right? And in our hearts and in our minds, we knew he wasn't. You know, he didn't play it up. He wasn't a drama queen. And, and it, that, that was the thing that amazed you, even on a, a record like Closer. When we came to do Closer and everyone says, oh, look at the lyrics of Closer, how could you not know? Now, if he'd have been laying in the corner of the studio crying, you might have gleaned that he wasn't happy. The thing was, he wasn't like that. He was marching around the room as happy as we were, as, as driven as we were. He had a fantastic relationship with Martin Hannett on that record. So there was nothing to show you, apart from his illness, you know, the occasional fit, that um, he, he wasn't really enjoying it. And that, that's the, the juxtaposition of the lyrics compared to the person. I thought one of the most revealing facts of all, which they left out of the Joy Division documentary, and I must ask Tom Atencio why, why, why they left it out, was that they took his prescription for his illness in 1978 to a modern-day epilepsy specialist and I got an opinion. The opinion was quite simple. It just said that this was guaranteed to kill him. Oh, my God. Mm. And because of the uppers and downers involved in what he was taking, the, the guy just said he had no chance here. Hmm. There was, I mean, but that was because the treatment was so barbaric, and I suppose that that's one of the things you have to, you know, thank God for the internet. In the, even if we'd have had the internet, maybe we'd have been able to go and sit down and go, what is epilepsy? Because we were a little bit too young um, and too maybe embarrassed to to find out exactly what it is, and it must have been awful for Ian. I mean, he wrote, "She's lost control," about an epilepsy sufferer mm -hmm. who'd had a fit and died. So that must have been. Oh my God, I can imagine how frightened you, you must have felt to be suffering from the same thing and watching that. And she turned around and took me by the hand and said I lost control again. And how I'll never know just why I understand, she said I lost control again. And she screamed out, kicking on the side and said I lost control again. And she's upon the floor, I thought she died, she said I You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with Peter Hook about Unknown Pleasures, his book about his brief stay in Joy Division, a very brief band, but what a band, amazing band. You talk about the sound. You're untrained. I mean, you said when you walked out of that Sex Pistols gig, 
we're going to form this band, but I don't really know how to play an instrument yet. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't have an instrument. Yeah. And Bernard was the same yeah. same bag. It wasn't real, like you were tutored musicians no. or anything. It's and very yet, late to start. Actually, 21, I found out. When I found out Johnny Marr was playing guitar at seven, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, you know, I mean, but you know, in, in a funny way, I actually had 21 years of quite enjoying myself, to be honest with you, and working for the man as you did, did mean that you got nights off and weekends off. As soon as you become a musician it's a 24-hour obsessive occupation that that sparse sound though that you came up with was was totally unique at the time and has certainly had staying power your bass style has been imitated by countless people here you are this untutored guy (laughs) and you're playing high up the neck and uh you know it's uh Uh, encouraged very much by ian actually Mm -hmm. it was ian that recognized that that sounded different and that it worked in a different way with the group uh, and literally used to go to great lengths to get me to do it, almost as much the lengths that Bernard used to go to at the end of New Order to not get me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it just shows you how your life turns full circle uh, there, doesn't yeah. it? That latest uh, New Order album is missing something. What could it be? It's mm. Most definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's interesting how tastes and relationships, but, you know, like any relationship that you have in life, once the sex has gone, it's over, isn't it? <laughs> you know? We won't go there with you and Bernard, but uh, <laughs> but the music was sounded like Ian played a great role as an editor, and, yeah, and Martin was, Hannett as he well. He was the and, conductor. I mean, mm-hmm. it, what, what did strike me in 2010 when I came to play the music to celebrate Ian's 30th anniversary of his life, as I, as I like to call it, was that most people had heard Joy Division on record mm-hmm. and not live. And on live, we were very, very different. Bernard, if he played synthesizer, he wouldn't play guitar. If you played guitar, you couldn't play keyboards. But, yeah, I mean, the, the sound, we never talked about it, you know. And in New Order, we never talked about what we wanted to sound like. We were, we were just able to do it. Each musician had a completely individual style. Steve's drumming in Joy Division was very, very riffy, almost like a drum melody. I, mine was the same, and Bernard had this wonderful melodic lead style that most of the time that he used to use, and it was Ian that had just put it together. I mean, it, it really was simple. You know, play a high riff, okay? Do them jungle drums, Steve. Bernard, <laughs> put some lead guitar on it. Buff. Unknown Pleasure is the first album. You address that in detail in the book, and you do talk about the fact that at the time you and Bernard were, were a little bit upset with yeah. mm-hmm. this should have been a little bit rougher, a little punkier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we wanted it to sound like Sex Pistols. We really <laughs> did all the clash. And Martin gave us this wonderfully mature sound that you, you didn't recognize. We recognised that, you know, with Martin's drug addiction, the guy was an absolute genius, man. But he, he ruled through chaos. His idea was never to tell you what to do, 
just to hint or allude to it <laughs> in the hope mm. that you did something more than he wanted you to do. And his record was that you could put any band in with him and no matter how long they'd been getting on, be it 40 minutes or 40 years, Martin would have them at each other's throats in a couple of hours. And he was very, very good at that. You know, he really did rule by chaos. Mm -hmm. And he did get the results. You know, I mean, for, for what he did with Joy Division was, he'd get Joy Division to record and then get them to record it again separately. So he had the maximum separation between each instrument. The way it's something that you take really for granted now with computers. The fact that he did Unknown Pleasures in six days... You know, from start to finish, closer in two weeks, mm -hmm. which I must admit at the time felt like a lifetime. The rhythm was such a big part of it because, yeah. you know, in that transition from Joy Division to New Order, we begin to get the embrace of many other different rhythms, not just that rock and roll boom, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha. Yeah. That's like, oh my goodness, like, what, what is Steve doing there? Writing 16th notes on the hi hat? That's yeah. almost disco. Steve was an absolutely fantastic, fantastic drummer, and I suppose that that was one of the reasons why I got so disenchanted with the. Uh, the band and their management when we came to do the soundtrack for Control mm. was that for them to turn around and say, oh, we'll do it without the drums, I just thought was the ultimate insult mm. to my bandmate, never mind me. It really was the, nearly the final nail in, in New Order's coffin was, was that attitude of that you want, you'd want to leave out somebody as important as Steve. I just thought, no, mm. this is horrible. I'm, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> But you're right about the, you know, the, the songwriting. I mean, there was so much stuff and the great singles that didn't end up on the albums. You know, I'm thinking about something like Transmission, which would have been a centerpiece track Digital. for every other band. Digital you know? was a great single. Mm -hmm. Disorder was a great single. We believed and we were sticking to the punk rule book. Mm -hmm. What was the point of putting your single on an LP when your audience had paid for it once? It just seemed disrespectful to get someone <laughs> to pay for it twice. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. And Tony Wilson actually went, yeah, that's right, I agree. That only changed when, funnily enough, with Power, Corruption and Lies on Quest, Quincy Jones's label in America, because people were buying the album, taking it home, realising it didn't have Blue Monday on, and coming back and giving it back. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's your lot that yeah. caused all the trouble. And the songs, the singles, didn't fit with the mood, the the coherence, the sequencing of unknown pleasures and closer. These were these were units. Uh, yeah, I mean, we songs. we never we would write and so well that's a single. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to actually do what we did with Dead Souls and Atmosphere, which was put it out in a limited edition French art <laughs> label, and the they only pressed fifteen hundred and seventy six copies because that was the last time the French beat the English. In a war. <laughs> uh, and we were like, well, all right then, give the French the moment, you know, let them have two of the best tracks we've ever written. There was no thought because we knew that we could write more. Me. Me. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're here with Peter Hook. Peter, the music was fabulous, but also the mystique around the group. I remember buying the imports in America. You know, me and my teenage friends were looking, who are these guys? There's no pictures of them. The, the artwork is kind of mysterious and dark and beautiful, and we didn't really know. You know, there wasn't a lot of press about you in the U.S., but that seemed to be part of it, too. It sort of built up interest in the group because you weren't ever overexposed. No, we made a conscious decision, actually quite early on that we didn't want to appear on the sleeves because we felt that that was again that the the art of celebrity and pushing yourself on the record sleeve we felt didn't actually sit very well with the punk ethic Mm. and I think that this brings us back to the point is that I didn't want to use the book to demystify too much about Joy Division because there was a lot of it that was conscious Ian in particular hated it when anybody singled him out you know he would go mental if it became Ian Curtis and Joy Division that that used to absolutely disgust him Mm. and it was through a couple of unfortunate interviews that we had where they tried to play him up and he just said well I'm not doing it you know I'm not having that the band are just as important as I am and and I'm not divorcing the two well it's it's clear that the band was on the ascent and I think people look back now level Terrace apart uh, kind of the posthumous release from the band and and ironically the most popular song in America that you guys released and Ian was already dead and the band was already dead at that point People look upon that single in a number of ways. You talked about the lyrics a little bit, but also the sound. You know, we hear this transition going on, and maybe is that just looking back in hindsight and saying, oh, we can hear the kernel of New Order here, or was that just, you know, the dance element? I think, I think you can see a maturity to the songwriting that's even more pronounced than the one from the punk demos mm-hmm. to Unknown Pleasures. I don't know how to term it, really. You know, you two guys are the experts. <laughs> You'd have to say it was, it was like a, a poppy, mature songwriting where you were sort of gaining a sound that was acceptable to more people, maybe, than the Joy Division sound. and I mean, it's a very interesting single, though. I mean, if you look at Ceremony and In a Lonely Place, you know, I played them recently. In a Lonely Place sounds very, very much like Joy Division. Ceremony sounds like New Order. And I do think that Bernard's interest in electronics and Steve's interest in electronics and drum machines, etc., would have led us, as Joy Division, to Blue Monday anyway. 
mm-hmm. I don't think the music would have changed. Ian wouldn't have been going, no, 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 don't do that, because those elements that Martin Hannett brought in, you know, the harp sequences and the sampling, first time we did it on Closer, the way that he mar- married the uh, electronic instruments with the acoustic instruments, it was, you know, we, we, we were definitely on our way. I don't think we would have changed that much. Now, New Order would have commercial success, finally. Oh, yeah, huge. become a really huge popular band success. worldwide. Can't be said of Joy Division. Journalists would write, you might not have heard of this group, but Joy Division is an important band. Did that contribute to its eventual success? Yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the great things about doing the signings is how many people have said to me that they got into Joy Division after New Order. Mm. So as long as you're proud of your heritage and you, you do include it, as we did. I mean, it was, it was interesting, really. I mean, the thing about New Order was, was that they, they, they didn't go through a grieving process for Joy Division. We literally went in the Monday after and became New Order and were completely focused on that to the detriment of Joy Division. We literally packed Joy Division in a bag and put its ashes into a cupboard. And left it there for so long. And didn't play those songs, I no. think, ever live, right? Mm, uh, uh, as no, New no. Order. Yeah, we, we, we did, as I said in the book, isolation, transmission, atmosphere occasionally, and Love Will Tears Apart. So the vast majority of your, of your catalogue, you just completely ignored. Mm. I mean, that was one of the wonderful things. When, when you were in New Order, before New Order split in 2006, it was okay to do that. And it felt okay right the way through. I must admit, what, once the band had split and you were outside, I particularly wondered why we'd never done anything to celebrate, anything to do with Joy Division. I just didn't understand it. Mm. Why, why did I do that? You know, Rob Gretton in particular was, was adamant that when Joy Division finished, we would not be seeing the back of it and that we would be as big in 10 years as we were now. Was that and hard to believe at the time? It, well, I, I didn't care, to be mm. honest, mm. I, because we were struggling trying mm. to you know, reinvent ourselves and cope with the death of uh, somebody very, very important to you. But he was right, and he was right 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. Joy Division is still quoted as an amazing inspiration to so many young groups, uh, and it's fantastic. I really do take it as a great compliment to the three songwriters and Ian. I'd love to address what you talked about with the, with the legacy of the group, though, because you've got this generation, 20-year-old kids coming out there picking something up here that resonates with them in a way that maybe a ton of other music that came out in that era doesn't. There is that myth that you address about, you know, the the, the rock martyr and the romanticism around that and maybe even some of the goth trappings which have been glommed onto that, which struck me as ridiculous from the start. But what is it that you know, a 20-year-old kid today is picking up that, that is resonating? Do you have any sense of that? It, it has to be the music. I mean, I must admit, when I started playing the music uh, in 2010, I thought that the audience would be full of fat old blokes like me. When I started playing it, the it was very, very mixed audiences. And some of the places we've been, you know, particularly like Mexico and Brazil, the audiences are really young. And I'm like, mm. whoa, it, it is surprising. But they all say the same thing. I love your music. And you're like, oh, fantastic. What, what more mm. as a musician could you ask for? And I don't think looking at them, that all of them, I mean, they are the occasional, you know, you do get the goth thing with the picture of Ian yeah. on, on, on their arm and, <laughs> yeah. oh, God, I died for you and, you know, all, all this. <laughs> oh, and you're boy. like going, well, well, fine, fine. You know, people are different and that's what makes the world interesting. But ultimately it has to come down to the music. And to get the music back and to get the celebration back into my life for what Ian did. Is, has been wonderful, and to play those songs again has been amazing. And whilst this past year has been one of the most difficult of my musical life because of what um, the others did in so-called New Order, 
reunion um, to play the music again it was fantastic. And I got that back and I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've watched that turkey play Age of Consent and now I'm playing it how it should be played. down the gauntlet earlier, Peter, about asking the question that, 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 that needs to be asked, all right? Some animosity with the so-called New Order mm, boys yeah. now, right? But you know deep down, there's got to be a part of you that knows deep down that if you and those guys got back together and played this Joy Division music, it would be different. And I would argue as a fan, it would probably be better. It would oh, certainly God, be more yeah. meaningful to me. Right? Definitely. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. don't, you're not so angry. In the same way that they're doing it. Right, right, right. Right. I would say the same thing. Exactly. I mean, there would be something getting Mm -hmm. back together with those fellows would add to this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't I, hate I, them that I, much. I, well, I mean, God, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing because it, it becomes a business thing, and it, and this is is like a divorce at the moment. Yeah, you know, this yeah. is a really bad divorce. Yeah. and generally in divorces, you don't let your your missus sort out your alimony. My beef with them is is that I I feel that they shouldn't be sorting out what I should be getting. I mean, I felt that New Order was was done. You know, I felt that we were not on the same page, as, as you Americans so, so nicely put it. <laughs> we didn't have the same ideals. We certainly didn't have the same ambitions. And we changed so much over the years. And whether you like it or not, unfortunately, for the last 20 years of New Order, it had been mainly me and Bernard. Mm-hmm. Definitely not Gillian. And Steve was really taking a back role. And it, it, was, it was too... The writing was on the wall. And I just thought, no, I'm not having this. Uh, I think the you know the economic and the austerity measures that are affecting us all in this world have probably more to do with New Order getting back together again than anything else. And the thing is, is that they won't admit that. Mm. And I'm realistic enough to admit that. And it's it's just a very very sad situation to be in. You know, to considering from going from one of the best rhythm sections in the world mm. and being one of the best groups in the world and then you hate each other's stinking guts. <laughs> it's really all interesting. Yeah, it's all too common know, story yeah. in rock and roll. But oh, I was I'm encouraged to hear you say that, yes, there is something pl- about playing the music with Bernard. Oh, my uh, God, you no. Know, I, because I, you can't get Waters to say... I'm not the same without Gilmore. No. And Gilmore will not grant that I'm not the same without Waters, but it's so freaking obvious. Mm. I would play with Bernard and Steve anytime because they are fantastic musicians. Peter Hook, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Now we want to turn it over to you, our listeners. We know we have got a lot of Joy Division and New Order fans in the audience. We hear from you all the time. Tell us what you think about Ian Curtis's legacy. Why are these bands still so important today? 888-859-1800. And visit the footnotes at soundopinions.org for links to other Joy Division episodes and our review of the most recent New Order album without the founding bass player, Peter Hook. Coming up, we review the trippy new mixtape from Chicago artist Chance the Rapper. 
That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Cocoa Butter Kisses from the new mixtape from Chance the Rapper. The name of the mixtape is Acid Rap. Chance the Rapper, born 20 years ago on the south side of Chicago, Chancellor Bennett. He has been a rising hip-hop star in a scene that has had a number of artists signed to major label contracts in the last couple of years. We're talking about Chief Keef, King Louie, Lil Durk, YP, Lil Reese, Young Chop, all have been signed to major label deals in the last year, year and a half out of Chicago. He's got a little bit of a difference than some of these other artists, though. Unlike the drill scene uh, that has produced a lot of these artists, kind of very, very street-tough language about gang-banging and drug-dealing on the south side of Chicago, a, a city notorious for the murder rate among young African-Americans in the last couple of years. Chance the Rapper is talking about the kid next door, really. His mixtape from 2012 put him on the map. It was called 10 Day. It was based on his 10-day suspension from high school and really portrayed this kind of genial guy who loves his mom, smokes a little weed, loves his soul dusties, coming very much out of that Chicago tradition of Kanye West and Common before him. Now we've got a second mixtape coming from Chance the Rapper. He appears in no hurry to sign a deal, even though apparently he's got every major label after him. The name of the mixtape is Acid Rap, and here's a track from it called Acid Rain on Sound Opinions. Kicked off my shoes, stripped acid in the rain, wore my jacket as a cape and my umbrella as a cane. The richest man rocks the snatchless necklace, spineless pushed in backless dresses. Wore my feelings on my sleeveless, my weed seedless, my trees leafless. I miss my diagonal grilled cheeses, and back when Mike Jackson was still Jesus. Before I believed in not believing in, yeah I ain't hell, who believed in me not breathing in. Cigarettes stained smile all covered in sin, my big homie died young just turned older than him. I seen it happen, I seen it happen, I see it always He still be screaming, I see his demons in empty hallways I trip to make the fall shorter Fall quarter was just a tall order And I'm hungry, I'm just not that thirsty 
As of late, all my verses seem not so versy. And all my words just mean controversy. Took the team up off my back like that's not your jersey. Stressing, pulling my hair out, hoping I don't get picked. All this medicine in me, hoping I don't get sick. Making all of this money, hoping I don't get rich. It's sick and still getting bodied for phones. Sometimes the truth don't rhyme. Sometimes the lies get millions of views. Funerals for little girls, is that appealing to you? From your cubicle, desktop, what a beautiful view. That was Acid Rain by Chance the Rapper from his Acid Rap mixtape. Greg, this is an extraordinary artist. You know, I caught a lot of guff locally in Chicago when I reviewed Chief Keef. I have a problem with gangster rap 30 years after its heyday when it's playing into these cliches. I don't like the embrace of nihilistic violence. Life in the African-American community anywhere in America, but especially Chicago, is not one-dimensional. What I love about Chancellor Bennett is he is a 20-year-old kid who is trying to have fun, trying to be creative, and is looking at the chaos around him and is commenting on all of it. He can be very, very funny with his elastic rhyming style. And then, on a dime, he can turn and be deeply profound, questioning his faith. I still be asking God to show his face and wondering why God doesn't take his cell phone calls. And on a track called Push a Man, a multi-part suite, sucking us in with those Snoop, Dre, old school gangster images and grooves and then turning on a dime. This is a kid who lost his best friend to violence in the streets of Chicago in this horrible epidemic we have. And he says, you know, if you were here, you'd be scared too. Why aren't you asking us if we're scared? Why aren't you here? This kid is an important voice and he's a fun voice. He is a real person. And I, I, I think this record's a masterpiece. It's a buy it. Yeah, Jim, it's an extraordinary record. I think it is very much in the lineage of the great music that Kanye and Common and Rhymefest, Lupe Fiasco, produced several years ago in that uh, second wave of Chicago hip-hop in the early 2000s. Chance has got that sense of humor that he showed on that first mixtape, but at the same time, the emotional growth and complexity on this second mixtape is an indication of greatness. Chance the Rapper, as you mentioned with uh, Push a Man, that is an extraordinary track. You know, six, seven, eight minutes of multi-part music where he's changing perspectives. And as you said, at the end, putting in that commentary about what is going on in the streets right outside his door. I hate crowded beaches. I hate the sound of fireworks. And I find what's worse between knowing it's over and dying first. Cause everybody dies in the summer. When they say goodbyes, tell them while it's spring. I heard everybody's dying in the summer. So pray to God for a little more spring. I know you scared. You should ask us if we scared too. If you was there. And we just knew you cared too. It's, it's a moving mixtape. At the end of the day, you think this kind of fun-loving kid is becoming an adult before our eyes and ears on this mixtape. It's a buy it all the way. So two very enthusiastic buy for an album that you can get anywhere for free. Acid Rap by Chance the Rapper. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we've got the breezy reggae-flavored pop music of Wild Bell live in the studio. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Mary Gaffney recorded Peter Hook for us. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he claims he had some good times in Manchester at the Hacienda back in the day. (laughs) 
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Zeb from Pennsylvania. I just got done listening to your show about Japanese music. My favorite Japanese band is Chat Munchie, which, if you ever wondered what the girl that Rivers Cuomo was writing to in Across the Sea might have done after she heard that song, I think she might have started a band like Chat Munchie. Anybody who misses the Weezer sound from the Blue Album and from Pinkerton and wants to hear what it would be like to have girls singing all the words, check out this band. Particularly the song Ren-Eye Spirits, I think, captures that uh, beautiful sound that Weezer had in those first few great albums. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Jim and Greg just heard your show on Music of Japan. I thought it was pretty good, but I think you focused a little too much on the J-pop. And there's a lot of other musical styles coming out of Japan. When I was there studying many years ago, there was a small rap scene with some actually pretty good stuff in it. First bands like Elephant Love, Backgammon, Naked Arts, Libro. This is Curran in Chicago. Thanks for all the great shows. This is Dave Waldstein calling from Philadelphia, formerly from Chicago. I wanted to thank you for uh, picking Take the Long Way Home for your desert island and loving Supertramp. I've also loved Supertramp, but have had to do it in the closet because people laugh at me. But uh, they are a fabulous band playing fabulous music. I first heard Take the Long Way Home, or first fell in love with it on an overland journey across Asia. Uh, at which I was, in fact, taking the long way home several months, and it was a perfect song for that journey. Thank you for your great show. So you think you're Romeo, playing a part in a picture show. Well, take the long way home. Take the long way home. If you're the joke of the neighborhood, why should you care if you're feeling good?
calling from Houston. Was just listening to your latest podcast with uh, Super Tramp, Take the Long Way Home. Ironically enough, it came on. I was only four blocks from the house. Hadn't heard that song in so long and loved it. I ended up taking a detour. I took the long way home. Thanks for a great podcast. And thanks for reminding me of a great song. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.